With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. How many stories have we heard about women silently standing behind men, supporting their work, and getting no credit? How many stories have we heard of women being blamed for the wrongdoings of men? How many women have suffered at the hands of men while those men have gone on to be treated as blameless? How many women have been blamed for their own suffering? Before we get any further in today's episode, which, as you might have guessed just from the first few seconds, is a bit of a heavy one, let's take a moment while we're still cheery to think about fun things like Ouija boards and Benjamin Franklin and killer clowns. Ah, isn't that nice? Fun things. You can hear strange stories about all those and more over on our Patreon, where we are releasing three additional bonus episodes every month, plus ad-free weekly episodes. Available today at patreon.com slash strange and unexplained. And now, welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a non-binary woman who is just standing here trying to get a man to take responsibility for the dishes. Or anything, really. Just kidding, Kurt is one of the good ones. I can go to sleep every night knowing I am supported and most likely will not be unalived for anything I am doing to raise awareness of injustice in this world. I wish I could say the same was true for everyone, but strangers, we know after so many episodes of this podcast that it does not always work that way. It is always a tragedy when someone is murdered. For the loved ones left behind, the who, how, and why is critical to find any semblance of closure. But when the victim is a well-known figure, especially one with any kind of political ties, the who, how, and why are a matter not only of justice, but of socio-political significance. Because of this, even if the murderer is known without a shadow of a doubt, a pall of suspicion will be cast over the whole situation, and before you can say Chappaquiddick, the plot is lost. Anna May Pictou was born on March 27, 1945, just outside Shubenacadie, Nova Scotia. Anna May and her family, her two older siblings and her parents, Mary Ellen Pictou and Francis Levi, were members of the Mi'kmaq Nation and lived on a small reservation. Francis abandoned the family in 1949, and Anna's mother, Mary Ellen, quickly remarried a Mi'kmaq traditionalist named Noel Sapir. Sapir was a strong believer in the preservation of his people's history, culture, and religion. He moved the family to another Mi'kmaq reservation, and though the family was poor, Anna May gained an appreciation for and an understanding of her culture and history. Unfortunately, when Anna May was just 11, her stepfather died of cancer. On top of that, the reservation school burned down and Anna Mae was forced to go to school off the reservation, where she excelled at first, but by the end of the year, her grades had tanked. 
By all reports, the white kids at her new school were fucking awful to anime. And the adults weren't much better. According to historian Joanna Brand's 1978 book, The Life and Death of Anime Aquash, quote, The schoolyard taunts and racial slurs against lazy, drunken Indians were a shocking forewarning to the life awaiting them. And the Indian children were usually blamed for the resulting fights. As she reached adolescence, anime's response to this conflict was increasingly silence and withdrawal, end quote. And then, in her first year of high school, in the winter of 1961, Anime came home from school one day to discover her mother had packed up her bags and left. Anime's eldest sister, Rebecca, who was expecting her own child, took on the responsibility of her three younger siblings as well. And they, along with her husband, all lived on $36 a week. According to Brand, quote, There was porridge for breakfast and only one other meal. Anime made herself as useful as possible, rising at 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. to feed Rebecca's infant son, showering the baby with attention and affection, end quote. And of course, Anime ended up dropping out before the end of that school year to go to work, because why on earth wouldn't she? Her family was in dire straits financially, and school was a living nightmare. During her work as a seasonal harvester, she met and fell in love with Jake Maloney, who was also a member of the Micmac Nation. The couple decided to move to Boston in 1965, when Anime was 17. In Boston, Anime got to work in a factory, soon married Jake in a ceremony in New Brunswick, Canada, and the couple had two daughters, Denise and Deborah. According to the 2003 book Indigenous American Women by Devin Mihisua, Quote, Anime was not satisfied with her life as a suburbanite. Although she enjoyed learning karate, which her husband later taught, she yearned for the company of other natives, so she became involved in organizing an Indian community center that eventually became the Boston Indian Council, an establishment designed to support natives who had moved from reservations to the intimidating city, end quote. 1968 was an active year for the Native American civil rights movement, there was a growing contingent of people frustrated and angry over the systemic racism that had promoted decades upon decades of poverty for people relegated to reservations. The U.S. government's Indian Relocation Act served to terminate many First Nations' sovereignty and absorb them into the mainstream population and encouraged Native Americans to move to urban centers. In response to the Indian Relocation Act, an activist group called the American Indian Movement, formed by Native American activists Dennis Banks and Russell Means, began coalescing. As the website NMOpedia explains it, quote, AIM's rise occurred during a time of extreme hardship for Native Americans in the Twin Cities. A decade later, the federal government had passed the Indian Relocation Act, which promised good jobs and housing for natives who moved from reservations into cities. Many of the thousands who migrated, however, found only low-wage labor, substandard housing, discrimination, violence, and despair. Their spiritual ceremonies, outlawed since 1884, were still illegal." End quote. The work Anime was doing with the Boston Indian Council was very much in line with what AIM was doing. Anime's husband, Jake, didn't share her enthusiasm for activism and cultivating community around Native people and culture. That, and he was too busy cheating on his wife. And when Anime discovered that in 1968, she left him. 
By this time, of course, Anna Mae was an expert in overcoming adversity, and she wasn't about to let some philanderer slow her down. By the fall of 1969, she and her two daughters were living in Bar Harbor, Maine, where Anna Mae dove even deeper into activism, teaching for a program called Tribe, teaching and research in bicultural education, where her daughters also attended school. Unfortunately, the Tribe program lost its funding and shut down in 1972. But Anna Mae kept going, this time moving herself and her daughters back to Boston, where she enrolled in the new careers program at Wheelock College. Here, she met and fell in love with a Chippewa man named Nojiasik Akwash, and the couple became more involved with the Indian rights movement. It was around this time that Anna Mae and Nojisik Akwash joined AIM. AIM's charismatic leaders, Dennis Banks and Russell Means, whom the New York Times once called, quote, the two most famous Indians since Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, end quote, would soon play a large part in Anna Mae's life. In 1972, Anna Mae participated in a march on Washington called Trail of Broken Treaties during which the group occupied the Bureau of Indian Affairs and presented a list of 20 civil rights demands. A 2014 piece in the New York Times described it this way, quote, the traveling band of militants had forcibly taken over the Bureau of Indian Affairs headquarters in Washington to demand, among other things, the return of valuable federal land to indigenous tribes. We're the landlord of this country, one slogan went, and the rent is due, end quote. It was the first time a national organization of Native Americans had faced down the U.S. government in this kind of way. After a weeks-long occupation, the government promised it would review the demands of the organization. But it wasn't just the U.S. government that AIM was fighting. In February of 1973, AIM leader Russell Means and a group of AIM members overtook the small Indian community of Wounded Knee in South Dakota the site of an infamous massacre of the Sioux by the U.S. Cavalry in 1890. AIM alleged that the tribal chairman of the Aglala Sioux at Wounded Knee was corrupt and used beatings and intimidation tactics to keep his community members in line. When the FBI got involved, Anna Mae traveled to Wounded Knee to join the fight. In a letter to her sister, she wrote, These white people think this country belongs to them. The whole country changed with only a handful of raggedy-ass pilgrims that came over here in the 1500s. And it can take a handful of raggedy-ass Indians to do the same. And I intend to be one of those raggedy-ass Indians. Joanna Brand described Anna Mae's contribution at Wounded Knee this way. Quote, in the days that followed, Anna Mae emerged as a cool head and hard worker among the occupiers of Wounded Knee. During the heavy volleys of government gunfire that riddled the village and the makeshift accommodations of the occupiers, Anna Mae impressed others with her ability to keep calm and retain a sense of humor. Anna Mae helped dig bunkers and was one of the few women who took part in the nightly patrols of the village. She considered herself a female warrior and did not hesitate to take on work usually done by the men, end quote. In April, during the standoff with the FBI, Anna Mae and Nojiishik Akwash were married in a traditional Lakota ceremony. The couple left Wounded Knee before the standoff was over. 
By the end of the ordeal, which was considered a moral victory for AIM and the Indian rights movement, two people were dead, 12 were wounded, and 1,200 were arrested. But Anna May and her new husband only faced minor charges. Anna May's involvement with AIM coincided with the FBI's growing interest in putting an end to the group. The incident at Wounded Knee put AIM at the top of the FBI's list of oppressed people who the FBI believed needed to be reminded of their place. Brand wrote, quote, The success at Wounded Knee made AIM a target for attack, particularly by the FBI, which in the wake of Wounded Knee increased its efforts to disrupt AIM, discredit its leaders, and strike fear into its supporters. Like other civil rights organizations that fought vigorously for equality and justice, AIM became a prime target for the United States secret police. End quote. But Anime's star in the organization was rising, and she was on track to be a national AIM leader. In 1974, she moved her family to Minnesota to work at the AIM offices there. Within a year, she helped lead a takeover of an abandoned Catholic monastery, quote, in protest of the termination of their federal Indian status, end quote, according to the blog First Nations Issues of Consequence. And even though the takeover ended peacefully, it landed Anna May squarely in the FBI's field of vision. From then on, the FBI was watching her. Over the next two years, Anime's involvement in AIM continued to grow, and by 1976, she was the highest-ranking female leadership member in the organization. But soon, her rising star would have a tragic fall. On February 24, 1976, rancher Roger Amiote was surveying the border of his property near Wanbley, South Dakota, and saw what looked an awful lot like the body of a woman lying at the bottom of a 30-foot steep embankment. The badly decomposed body was wearing jeans and a maroon ski jacket and lay with her knees pushed up toward her chest. Pathologist Dr. W.O. Brown flew to the reservation the next day to perform an autopsy on the unidentified woman. According to Brand, these were the doctor's findings. Quote, Except for a small cut on the head, Brown reported no evidence of physical injury. He concluded that the woman had died of exposure and had been dead about two weeks and speculated that, like many other reservation residents over the years, she had gotten drunk fallen asleep, and frozen to death. Laboratory analysis later revealed no alcohol or drugs in the woman's blood, end quote. I mean, she was an American Indian, so obviously she got drunk and fell asleep. This fucking guy. After the autopsy, Brown cut off the woman's hands, placed them in a preserving jar, and handed them to the FBI agents who were observing the autopsy. Why would the FBI be at the autopsy of an unidentified woman who got drunk and fell asleep outside and froze to death? Furthermore, why would they need this woman's hands? Like, they didn't think to bring their fingerprinting kit? Isn't that sort of like a standard-issue tool at the morgue? On March 3rd, the body, still unidentified, was buried in an unmarked grave in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. But then, with remarkable timing, later that same afternoon, the D.C. fingerprint-type authorities contacted the FBI to let them know that the fingerprints they'd made from the severed hands 
the same exact fingerprints they could have gotten at the autopsy without desecrating the body, belonged to Anna Mae Pictou Aquash. Anna Mae's family was notified, and completely unsurprisingly, Anna Mae's family didn't believe for a second that Anna Mae died of natural causes. They hired a lawyer and formally requested that her body be exhumed from the unmarked grave. According to a piece in the Washington Star from May of 1976, quote, on March 9th, the FBI filed an affidavit in U.S. District Court in Rapid City permitting exhumation for, quote, purposes of obtaining complete x-rays and further medical examination, end quote. And this is wild to me. One would think that upon learning the identity of someone they buried in an unmarked grave and whose family is still alive would preclude a whole legal rigmarole. You'd think the FBI would be like, oops, (laughs) our bad, and ask where they wanted the body shipped. Along with the hands, for fuck's sake. Anyway. Anime's family had questions. How did she really die? Who was responsible? And why was she in South Dakota? Getting anywhere near that answer would prove to be a wild ride. So anyone who's ever worked in the nonprofit world knows that social movements often follow a similar trajectory. A few people who are passionate about a cause get together and start affecting change at a grassroots level, and the movement begins to grow and attract more people. And before you know it, there's a board, an org chart, and tote bags. Soon there's things like fundraising galas and people start hobnobbing with politicians. Then there's infighting, and one day you turn around and the founding members have been ousted, and there's a whole new team of leadership that looks a lot different and is usually from a different tax bracket than the communities they are supposedly trying to help. That is, of course, if your organization doesn't come off as a threat to the government, in which case, instead of fundraisers and tote bags, you get FBI informants and moles sowing seeds of distrust within the organization until it eats itself. By 1975, Anna was clashing with AIM leaders. In a 2011 piece in the Graduate History Review called Slaying the Sun Woman, historian, professor, and writer Brian Reinfleisch wrote, quote, Whereas the AIM leadership concentrated on political issues of sovereignty, treaty rights, and reparations, Anime Aquash felt that other, more pressing issues deserved attention, including rampant poverty, poor health conditions, and lack of medical treatment along with high rates of drug, alcohol, spousal, and child abuse. Many in AIM, and most particularly the female membership, were supportive of Aquash's grassroots undertakings and viewed her efforts as a positive strike against the hurdles of machismo, or sexism, that pervaded the organization, end quote. Margot Thunderbird, who wrote speeches for AIM and worked with Anna Mae in the movement, told the New York Times... We were doing what Indian women did for thousands of years, which was stand behind the men and prop them up. We wanted to present an image, and angry Indian man was better than angry Indian woman. Anime and I said to each other, do we want to be the ones to get in their way? The men were showtime. Some in the organization resented anime's growing importance in the group and the movement. 
As she tried to reconcile her desire for grassroots activism with the more mainstream goals of leadership, pretty soon there were, as Reinfleisch wrote, quote, internal jealousies and leadership divisions, end quote. In the inimitable words of Mrs. Potts, it's a tale as old as time. Anna Mae didn't exactly help herself in terms of popularity, however, when she started having an affair with AIM leader Dennis Banks, who was already in a common-law marriage with another woman in the organization. So, on June 25th of 75, FBI agents Jack Kohler and Ronald Williams entered Jumping Bull Ranch on the same reservation as Wounded Knee with the intent of arresting a man who was wanted for burglary. Leonard Peltier, a high-level leader of AIM at the time, was camping on the ranch. A shootout between the FBI agents and residents of the ranch ensued, though no one has ever claimed to know who fired the first shot. One member of AIM was killed, and both FBI agents were wounded in the shootout. Then, the two agents were executed by point-blank shots to the head. Peltier, along with Daryl Dean Butler and Robert Robodeau, two other AIM members, were charged with the murder of the agents. Then, less than two months later, the FBI conducted yet another raid on another reservation in South Dakota. A hundred agents poured into the reservation before dawn, catching Dean Butler and Anna May, who they charged with federal firearm and explosives violations. The following month, October of 1975, a small group of AIM members attempted to flee their warrants. Among them were Dennis Banks, Leonard Peltier, and Anna May. The group made their way to Los Angeles, where none other than actor Marlon Brando lent them a motorhome and $10,000 to make their getaway. On November 14th, the FBI had been tipped off by an informant and caught up with the group in Oregon. A state trooper pulled the RV over, finding it full not only of wanted people, but guns and explosives. The trooper ordered the group out of the motorhome, at which point Peltier took off on foot toward the woods. He was shot in the back, but still managed to escape. According to the New York Times, quote, he would later be captured, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison, despite the efforts of celebrities and human rights activists who claimed that he didn't receive a fair trial, end quote. Banks used the commotion of Peltier fleeing to hit the gas and take off in the RV, leaving the rest behind, including Anna May, who was arrested and returned to South Dakota, where she was then charged with skipping out on her hearing for her original charges of weapons violations. She was released from jail, but was supposed to stick around to receive indictments on the charges from the shootout at Jumping Bull, to which she essentially said, fuck that noise, and skipped town again on November 25th. Anna Mae spent the next three months laying low and traveling from one safe house to the next, trying to stay ahead of the feds. Officially, no one saw her after November 25th until she was found dead three months later. As Anime's family began to learn all this through their investigation after her death, tensions escalated. As Brian Reinfleisch put it, quote, the Aquash murder served as a flashpoint for escalating tensions between AIM and the FBI. 
Dennis Banks, Russell Means, Clyde and Vernon Bellacourt, and other male activists publicly declared that an FBI conspiracy had led to Akwash's death. For the AIM leadership, her slaying epitomized the Pine Ridge Reservation's so-called reign of terror between 1973 and 1976, a period during which 57 Native people turned up dead, alleged murders that AIM blamed on the FBI and the Pine Ridge tribal government, end quote. Those in the activist community, especially during the tumultuous civil rights era, believed the FBI would make a murder happen one way or another in order to sow fear as a destabilizing tactic. Adding to the Native community's already deep-seated suspicion of the FBI, when a new autopsy was performed on Anime's exhumed body, the whole she-died-of-natural-causes schmageggy was blown apart. It turns out the original pathologist in the initial autopsy somehow managed to miss the bullet hole in Anime's head. Listen, I'm no autopsier, but that seems like something they teach on day one of autopsy school, no? When trying to determine the cause of death, make sure to check for bullet holes. Months went by, and the investigation into Anime's murder stalled out, in part due to the Native community's understandable reticence to talk to authorities. In 2014, Rod Oswald, who had become one of the case's lead prosecutors, told the New York Times, The great obstacle with Anime all along has been the disconnect of trust from the witnesses we needed. It's something they've passed down to their kids, almost like a legend. The FBI killed her and covered it up, and therefore there was no way the federal government could bring justice to the Native American people. I mean, this is like saying that young black Americans don't trust the police just because their parents told them not to, instead of acknowledging the very real and very ongoing injustices black people face at the hands of the police every day now. Like, parents didn't need to pass down the legend of anime picked to Aquash to their kids to make them afraid of the FBI. The FBI made them afraid of the FBI. Between 1976 and 1999, four grand juries looked at the case, but got nowhere. Largely, again, because nobody from AIM would testify. In March of 2018, speaking at the National Inquest to Missing and Murdered Indigenous Girls and Women, Denise Maloney Pictou, Anime's daughter, said, There was so much silence and so much fear. People just didn't want to talk. Indians were not willing to go and talk to the authorities because the authorities were always portrayed as the bad guys. It would turn out that Denise and a few other survivors of the AIM movement weren't so sure the FBI were the ones to blame in Anime's murder. As time went on with no official answers as to who killed Anna May, rumors that had started before she was murdered began to come to light. At some point when Anna May was in jail, she allegedly told a fellow AIM member that she was scared to be released. She had been let out of jail for an earlier arrest pretty quickly while others stood trial, and people thought it was because she was working with the feds. Apparently, in a phone call to her sister in the winter of 75, she said, They're out to kill me. They'll get me. 
If the FBI doesn't get me first? She didn't specify who they were, but I think we can all assume she wasn't talking about the Lollipop Guild, you know? In the last letter Anime wrote to her sister, she said, My efforts to raise the consciousness of whites who are so against Indians in the States was bound to be stopped by the FBI sooner or later. But no sweat. I'm Indian. All the way. And always will be. I'm not going to stop fighting until I die. And I hope I'm a good example of a human being and my tribe. Anime asked that the letter be saved for her daughters so they would know the truth. The particular information some reporters and government officials have claimed Anime's fellow AIM members didn't want her sharing with the FBI was regarding Leonard Peltier's culpability in the killing of the two FBI agents at Jumping Bull Ranch. Peltier had always maintained his innocence, but at a trial for Arlo Looking Cloud in 2004, Dennis Banks' ex-wife Darlene Kamuk testified that Peltier had bragged to her and Anna May about killing the FBI agent. In fact, some believed that the informant who tipped off the FBI about the group fleeing in Marlon Brando's RV was Anna May herself. Peltier would later tell his biographer... Anna May was involved in a lot of stuff, and she could have done a lot of damage if she was an informer. I mean, so were a lot of AIM members. I'm sure there were dozens of members who could have done a lot of damage if they were informants. According to Reinfleisch, quote, investigators argue, for example, that Aquash had knowledge of AIM's members' involvement in drug and gun trafficking with other civil rights organizations, the Chicano Movement's Crusade for Justice, for one, and the Communist Party USA, which suggests an alternative motive for eliminating Aquash as an AIM threat, end quote. How has this woman's story not been turned into a movie? Despite there being no evidence that Anime was an informant, by the beginning of the new millennium, there was more and more evidence that people in her movement believed she was an informant and that those people were responsible for her death. Journalist Eric Konigsberg of the New York Times put it this way, quote, To Aquash's compatriots, watching the truth seep out has been unsettling. It's easy, so many years on, to forget the tumult of the civil rights era, the blood in the streets, the palace revolutions. What to do when the search for answers reveals that several of your own were actually the culprits? What if, in the final unfolding of this morality play, the heroes turn out to have acted unheroically? End quote. And that is, of course, what ended up happening. Hindsight is, if not 2020, at least very revealing. And when people start digging around for the truth, sometimes ugly things turn up. In 1999, Darlene Kamuk, Dennis Banks' ex-wife, saw an article about anime with claims that people within AIM were responsible for her death. So she decided to start poking around a little to see what she might dig up. 
One might think it curious that the ex-wife of a man who was having an affair with Anna Mae would be interested in helping find justice for Anna Mae. But as Darlene explained it, she knew of the affair and didn't really care. She told the New York Times, I was over it by now. I mean, why should I lose a friend because of Dennis? We never talked about him. Anyway, when Anna Mae skipped town for the last time on November 25th, the rumors were that she was desperate to see Dennis Banks. So she made her way to Denver where she hoped to meet up with him. She stayed for a week at a safe house until one night in December, according to the article in The Times. A car pulled up at the safe house, then another, and then two more, until there were as many as a dozen visitors on the ground floor apartment. Aquash left with three people in a red pinto and was never heard from again. Upon learning this in 1999, Darlene decided to help the FBI by wearing a wire as she continued to gather more information from people who were around when Anna Mae went missing. Over the course of a year, she got dozens of hours of recordings with 10 different witnesses, including Arlo Looking Cloud, who had been at the Jumping Bull Ranch when the shootout with the FBI agents took place back in the early 70s. Wearing a wire, Darlene picked Looking Cloud up from jail and started asking about Anna Mae. She later testified, Arlo was very emotional when I asked him certain questions. There were times when he became choked up. Looking Cloud eventually confessed to being involved in Anime's murder, but named John Graham, another low-level member of AIM, as the gunman. And so, finally, at Looking Cloud and Graham's trial, the details of Anime's last three months came out. On December 10th, 1975, while Anime was staying at the safe house in Denver, AIM member Angie Janice got a call from Thelma Rios, another AIM member, to spread the word that Anna Mae was an FBI informant. Janice went to the safe house and passed the information on to members Theta Nelson-Clark and or John Boy Patton Graham, who, with the help of Looking Cloud, tied Anna up, loaded her into the back of Clark's red pinto, and transported her to Rapid City, South Dakota, where she was held captive for a few days and questioned about her involvement with the FBI. Prosecutors also alleged that Graham raped Anna Mae during this time. And then, according to a piece in the Vancouver Sun from 2010, quote, Finally, one morning at sunrise, prosecutors say the three AIM enforcers, Graham plus Americans Arlo Looking Cloud and Theta Clark, drove Anime Pictou Aquash to the edge of a ravine on the reservation. Aquash begged to go free, say prosecution documents. She was crying and praying for her kids and begging them not to do this. Looking Cloud and Graham marched Aquash up a hill, and Graham shot her at the top of a cliff. Her body was either thrown or it tumbled to the bottom, end quote. Theta Nelson Clark wasn't tried for Anna Mae's murder, not because it wasn't clear that she was involved, but because by the time these allegations came to light, she was 87 and living in a nursing home. She died in 2011. And while Graham, Looking Cloud, and Clark may have been guilty of physically murdering Anna Mae, prosecutors were certain they were acting on orders from higher up. These were low-level members who likely wouldn't have had the motive or permission to murder the highest-ranking female leader of the organization. 
In 2014, New York Times reporter Eric Konigsberg paid a visit to Dennis Banks, who was 74 years old. Banks denied being involved in Anime's murder, but added, I don't know if I would participate in some sort of getting rid of the person, but I would say, take care of this or take the guy out and I don't want to see him again. I mean, listen, call it what you want, but giving thinly veiled and vague orders that clearly mean kill them is definitely participating in getting rid of the person. Banks believed that ultimately, whether she was an informant or not, the FBI intentionally stirred the pot within the organization to sow fear and distrust, and that that was what put Anna May in the ground. He said... However these people got put up to putting the bullet in Annie May, I already know all I need to. The government set the stage for anybody in the movement to think that Annie May was a fed when the judge let her out of jail for the last time in Pierre. There are no secrets and questions left. If there's a burning house, no one gives an order to put out the fire. Someone just goes and does it. It was people who fell into an idea. And while there is no actual evidence that Anime ever cooperated with the feds, there is plenty of evidence that the feds went around spreading rumors about members being informants. Not just with AIM, but within several civil rights organizations in a practice called snitch jacketing in order to create what some have called a vortex of paranoia. Indeed, immediately after Anime's death, three AIM members confessed to being FBI agents who infiltrated the group. According to Brian Reinfleisch, quote, in this climate of mistrust and with her insider knowledge of AIM's activities, Aquash ultimately became a target of the leadership's paranoia. Contemporary investigators argue that the AIM leadership was convinced of Aquash's role as an informant and that their suspicion and paranoia ultimately led to her assassination, end quote. Anime's daughter Denise was 11 when her mother was murdered. She never bought the story that her mother was killed by the FBI. She believes her mother was murdered because of the pervasive violence and mistreatment of women in her community. At the National Inquest, she testified, My mother is a testament to what we deal with today in our communities, with the level of violence and domestic abuse, and with the premise that, above all costs, you have to protect the brotherhood. This goes against our traditional upbringings. Hopefully, the truth behind the senseless murder of this woman will help to return the focus of her story back to the good she was doing for her community and away from the distraction of false rumors of her treachery. Anna Mae Pictou Aquash should be remembered for her incredible resilience, her refusal to back down when things were hard, and her belief that her people deserved better than what they had. She should be remembered as being on the right side of history, because she was. May her legacy be treated with more respect than she was, in life or in death. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, it's an oldie, but a goodie. When people in Salem, Massachusetts started acting strange, the accusations of witchcraft and wizardry started to fly, even if the people themselves never actually did. 
the Salem Witch Panic. For even more Strange and Unexplained, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash strangeandunexplained, where you can get three bonus episodes per month for just five bucks. And for just another $2, you get all those, plus all the regular episodes ad-free. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Andrea Jones-Sojola, Crystal Simmons, and Ryan Garcia. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. You can find us on social media at SNUpod on Instagram, and join the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. If you like our show, please do help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a glowing review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you don't like the show, feel free to give a one-star and a scathing review. The name of the podcast is Get Off My Lawn Podcast with Gavin McInnes.